If you are older than four or five years of age, you have probably experienced a moment in your life when uh, all seems lost. In those situations, uh, your feelings, your feelings, they're, they're very powerful and they're very real. When you feel like, I, I, I'm not sure, I can go on, I, I, I don't, I, I, it seems like all is lost. Our, our feelings in those moments, they're, they're powerful and they're real, but they're not accurate. They're not true. In other words, uh, the, the key word in, in today's sermon title is the word seems. When all seems lost. I don't want to understate the reality of the trials and the adversities that some of you have faced. Some of them are severe and devastating. They're a big deal. They're impactful. They're hard. It is part of the human condition to experience circumstances and to feel like all seems lost. I can't handle the pain. I can't continue any longer. This is the situation that David is in, in today's chapter, in today's passage. If you've been not with us in recent weeks or your visitor today, kind of set the stage for you a little bit of what's going on here. David has been living in enemy territory. He's an Israelite. Not any Israelite. He is the anointed king, about to be king of Israel. But he's been living in Philistine territory. Imagine you will, if you would, uh, an American general living in Russia and serving in the Russian army as though he were now a Russian. That's what David has been doing. He's been there for some time on the edge of Philistine territory. And if you were here last week, we saw David and his men were about to go into battle with the Philistines against the Israelites. And if you were here last week, you remember that there were um, all but one of the Philistine generals that said, hey, I'm not sure we want to take Hebrews into battle with us to fight the Hebrews. It's probably not a great idea. So they send David back and his men, his Israelite, living as though they're Philistine men for some time, they send them back to this Philistine outpost, far on the edge of Philistine territory. It's a long journey home for David and his men. It takes them three days to get there. We all know what it's like to go home, right? Uh, we don't all know what it's like to be a soldier, but we know what it's like to go home even after a vacation. I mean, is it good to go home? I mean, even if it's just to your own bed, but to go home to your wives, to your children, to your friends, to your family. They were looking forward to going what was their home, at least it had been for some time, on this outpost of the Philistine territory. After traveling three days with this eagerness to get there, it seems that all is lost. That sets the stage for our passage today. I hope you have your Bibles still open or your phone open. Shut everything else down on your phone, but if you want to use your phone, 1 Samuel 30 is where we are. Let's take a look together 
at verse 1. So David and his men reached Ziklag. This is the Philistine outpost where they have been living. They reached there on the third day. They have been excused from battle. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, when they came home, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. Imagine going home, and your town has been burned, and your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors have been taken captive. The men have been gone to war, and everyone else has been kidnapped. Look at verse 4. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. It is as though everything is lost. They are crushed. This isn't like he's crying in the corner quietly so no one hears. This is a congregation, a battalion of men who have wept aloud until they have no more strength to weep. Their loved ones are gone. Their town is burned. Verse 5, David's two wives have been captured. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Now to compound grief, the men as they return, uh, the text doesn't tell us. So I, I, what I think is going on here is, is something like this. You, you could picture conversations having had taken place already that said, Hey, David, maybe we should leave some guys back here to guard Ziklag since we're on the very edge of the territory and everybody knows this battle's going on and, and our town's going to be vulnerable. Maybe we should leave some back here. That's not in the text, but I think that sort of conversation may have happened. Or maybe the conversation happened, hey, maybe we shouldn't go join the Philistines and fight our fellow brother Israelites. Whatever the conversations were, the men left. And now, not only is David grieving the loss of his family, but his men, his own soldiers, want to kill him. Back to the text. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. Their, their, their grief is like soldiers might have this tendency to do. Their grief is turning to physical violence toward their leader, the anointed king of Israel, David. But I love this phrase, and this is really the heart of the sermon today and the heart of this passage. The last phrase here in verse 6. But David found strength in the Lord his God. As we read the Bible, what we want is the Bible to read us. 
you and I, like David, have had experiences, I hope you're not having one now, but some of you may be having one now, when it seems that, that, that everything's lost. And, and, and how do I go forward? What, what, how, do I, how do I maintain in this? And what we need to do is the same thing that David did, to find strength in the Lord, our God. So the Lord, his God, is the covenant-keeping God of Israel, and he is in a personal relationship with this God. It is not just this esoteric God, I believe there's a God out there, I don't know anything about him. It is his God. If you've read the Psalms, you know about the personal relationship that David has with God. It is so profound that those Psalms are there to help teach us how to relate to God and to cry out to God. David cries out to God with his pain, with his victories, with his anger, when God seems distant all throughout the Psalms. And so the Lord his God, the word there for Lord, is the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh. That's the word in Hebrew there. And if we were to think about an equivalent of that word following the death and resurrection of Jesus, it would be the name Jesus. In other words, this is the name that distinguishes the God of Israel. All of their neighbors were polytheists. They were monotheists. They believed in the one true God, the creator and sustainer of the world. And so if we were going to look for an equivalent to the name Yahweh that's translated Lord in our English Bibles here, it would be Jesus. He is the second person of the Godhead. He is our Lord. And so you and I need to find strength in a personal relationship with Jesus when all seems lost. Now, that's easy to say, but how do we actually do that? Well, we're going to find some help with that in the next unit of Scripture once we get um, further down in verses 7 and 8. But before we move uh, there, um, I want to draw some contrast. You know, Saul, not too many uh, paragraphs ago, not too many chapters ago, Saul feels like everything is lost. For him, the situation is he knows he's about to be taken over and, and the Philistines are about to attack and they're going to lose. And where does Saul seek refuge? There might be a hint on the screen. Where does he seek refuge? The witch of Endor, this medium. Ancestor worship. What's going on in Papua New Guinea? And actually it goes on here as well in the foothills, especially in like Grass Valley in Nevada City. But <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't in them. It, it happens in Auburn. It happens in Loomis. So Saul is seeking refuge in the witch of Endor. David is seeking refuge in verse 6 in his God. The question that the careful reader who wants to know and love God with all of his or her heart, soul, mind, and strength would ask the question here, where, where do I seek refuge? Where, where do I seek refuge? Where do you seek refuge? when all seems lost. There's lots of smaller places we could seek refuge. That's a, another sermon. But ultimately and primarily, we need our help and our refuge to be in the Lord, our God, in Jesus, our Savior. Now, there is a long history in church history, 2,000 years, and 
we're going back here another thousand years. I, I don't know if you've thought of this. It came to my mind at those of you that were here at the gathering in on Wednesday. Um, uh, Jeffrey, thank you. I'm so bad with names. Jeffrey, who led the devotional on Wednesday before the gathering in, the time of the word, reminded us that this, this, this book we're reading is, is 3,000 years old, 1 Samuel. This is 3,000 years old and so relevant to um, our lives. But if we just look at church history, there have been so many people in church history the last 2,000 years who have been, who, who have been in a situation where, where everything seems lost and the Lord strengthens them and sees them through. And we should be encouraged by these folks as well as we should be encouraged by how the Lord sustains David here. And we're going to talk about how to do that in just a moment. But I, I want to um, bring up this man who I've read his biography not long ago. You've heard me talk about him, not recently, but Frederick Douglass. I love reading Christian biography. He's a, a believer, a, a former slave, a man who fought for liberty and freedom and dignity for African Americans uh, prior to the Civil War and, and after the Civil War, and just an amazing man of God. And there's a point in his life where all seems lost. Things were, were going, things were improving, things, things were moving for, for, for the cause of slaves and African Americans. And then there was this uh, court case that came about, and you may be familiar with it. It was called Dred Scott. Dred Scott versus Sanford. And this is a picture of Dred Scott here, and I'm not a legal scholar or a constitutional scholar or a Supreme Court scholar, but let me, let me summarize the legal brief briefly for you as a pastor. What happened here? So this guy is living in a state in the north where slavery is illegal. His owner is in the south where slavery is thriving and, and going on. And so he sues, and it goes to the Supreme Court, and his suit is saying, I live in a state where you cannot be owned by someone, and I would like to be declared free from my master. It was a big case. It makes its way to the Supreme Court. And especially those in the abolitionist movement are waiting for the decision of this case, which as you see on the screen, was decided against Dred Scott 7-2. to two. He's asking to be a free man in his state and not owned any longer. Here's just a part of the ruling of the Dred Scott case. Let me read it to you. It said, A Negro of the African race had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with a white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. He was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic whenever a profit could be made by it. So the United States Supreme Court ruled 7-2 to two that Dred Scott 
was not a citizen of the United States, that he wasn't entitled to file a lawsuit. And he was owned by his slave owner in whatever state it was in the South. So back to my friend, Frederick Douglass. How does he respond as a Christian and a leader of the abolitionist movement when all seems lost? Many were responding by it's time to leave the United States. And there were boats, and even the federal government was paying for Africans to leave our country after this case. But he did not go that route, Frederick Douglass. In one of his messages, he says this, the Supreme Court of the United States is not the only power in the world, but the Supreme Court of the Almighty is greater. The Supreme Court of the United States could not change the essential nature of things, making evil good and good evil. He rejected the ruling of the court. He, he goes on in another one of his sermons, uh, lectures or sermons, they were kind of the same thing for him shortly after that. And he said this to, this would have been an almost entirely black crowd in front of him. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one. And it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. He was calling the people to fight against this evil. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. It seemed like everything was lost when the court ruled this. But this man, Frederick Douglass, who's been, who's been following the Lord and reading the scriptures, for him his King James Bible in English, he's been reading it since he was a boy, which it was illegal for him to learn to read that Bible. But he learned to read it. And he sought the Lord. And he needed God's help. And God was with him. And he rallied the people. God has a long history of helping people find strength when everything seems lost. The key word in the title of this message is the word seems. Back to our text, David, it seems, I mean, it's hard to process not having been a soldier, not having done what David has done. If you've been here in recent weeks, you know David has gone into towns and killed everyone man, woman, and child, enemy territory. And so my guess is, the text doesn't say this, but I'm thinking that David was thinking probably many of them are dead or worse because of what he had done. So he needs strength when all seems lost. So now I want to get to the part, uh, uh, verses 7 and 8, and I want to get to the part of well, how it's easy to say everything I've just said, but how exactly, you might be saying, how do we find this strength? How, how did David get his strength? How do we get our strength? That is in the Lord. We know it's through the Lord, but how does this come about? Let's look at verses 7 and 8. So David says to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. The ephod was this 
um, garment that the priest would wear. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding army? This raiding army? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in battle. So what David has done here is he has not, not called up a median or just taken off in anger, something that Saul did, something that David has done before, just, just I'm going to go slaughter, I'm going to go get revenge. David doesn't do either of those things. He actually follows God's law about how this is supposed to go down. Look on the screen with me at 1 Samuel 28. It says, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. And here's three ways. There are many other ways. But here are three biblically prescribed ways for a believer 3,000 years ago living under the Old Covenant how they would find help and guidance from God. Three ways. Either by dreams or by Urim. And Urim is the same description of what's in our text here. So Urim is another way to describe when David says in verse, um, in, in verse 7 to the priest, Abiathar, bring me the ephod. That's the same thing as Urim. And so I don't want to get into all the details of this and there Hard to even know, but the priest would wear this garment, and in that garment there would be some stones or, or something like that. And they would use these stones, I, I don't want to say it was like throwing dice, but it was, it was something kind of like that. It was, it was what God had set up to discern his will. It was prescribed in God's word. So how did, how did a person who loves God in the old covenant find help and direction? It would come sometimes through a dream. It would come through the, the ephod or Urim, and it would come through a prophet like Samuel. So Saul inquired of, of the Lord, and he doesn't get an answer. And instead of waiting on the Lord or persisting in these ways, we, we've already talked about it. Saul uh, says to one of his servants, Seek for me a woman who's a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there's a woman, a medium at Endor. So that's how he deals with it. What I'm trying to draw our attention to is there is a prescribed way for David under the Old Covenant to find help from the Lord. So at that point, as we read the Bible, we should be saying to ourselves, okay, well, what are the prescribed ways for us in the New Covenant after the death and resurrection of Jesus to find strength, especially when all seems lost? So here's, here's one answer to that. Throughout church history, there's been a phrase that's been used. It's not in the Bible, but it's a phrase that's been used. Uh, this phrase, ordinary means of grace. And they're called ordinary means of grace because they're ordinary. They're not extraordinary or rare. So a rare or extraordinary means of grace might be God leads you through a dream or God leads you through, through some uh, vision or Someone, like we read about in Acts, speaks in your language who doesn't know your language, and then you hear God communicating to you in your language. Someone who speaks Spanish only speaks in French, and the French person hears the Spanish person who doesn't know French speaking in French, and God communicates a message. That, that would be an unusual, an uncommon, a superordinary means of grace. But in church history, we have this phrase, an ordinary means of grace. 
So how David found guidance and help were, were through the three ways we just looked at. And here are some ways, ordinary ways, that we would find God's help. I have four of them from the scriptures. The word or the teaching of the apostles, fellowship, the sacraments or ordinances, like the Lord's Supper, gathering together to be strengthened as we celebrate the gospel and partake of the cup and the bread, and finally, prayer. And so if you are um, a a Berean, you remember what the Bereans were known for? They were known for it, it saying, when the person's preaching, is this true? Is this in the Bible, what, 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 what he's saying? Are these the ordinary means of grace? So you should, you should ask that. Go ahead, say, are these? The, are these is this true? Are they, are they? Yes. Yes, they are. Look at Acts chapter 2 with me on the screen. They, the believers, were continually, the believers in the new covenant, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, were continually devoting themselves to. What were they continually devoting themselves to? It wasn't to the Urim and to dreams and, and, and so on, and, and to worship at the temple and, and, and sacrifice as animals. Things, many things have changed with the coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection. What were they continually devoting themselves to? To the apostles' teaching, which we have recorded in our New Testaments. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Another way to describe that would be the New Testament. They were continually devoted to studying, to preaching, to hearing the New Testament. They were not continually devoted to Instagram or Facebook or a Netflix series. I'm not saying those things are all evil. They're not. But I'm saying, what are we continually devoted to? They were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And this is the Greek word koinonia. It doesn't mean people who get together from a particular profession once a month and enjoy each other's company. That's not what fellowship means. It means intimacy. To be really honest, it doesn't happen much on Sunday mornings. Fellowship. If I know the, the tragedies in your life right now, it's because I've spent time with you outside of this setting. If I know a situation in your life where all seems lost, it's probably not connected to Sunday morning. We've spent time together around a table at Missions Coffee on a walk in the woods, in my living room, on my deck. And we've talked about our lives. And we apply the word of God to our lives and the gospel to our lives. And we share with each other what we have financially. We share cars. We share homes. We share our stuff. This is what it meant. They were continually devoted, the early church, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to koinonia. That's what that meant and to the breaking of bread, which may refer to the meal that they would have together on Sundays, but it also, I believe, refers to the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist or whatever we want to call what we do on the first and third Sundays as a church family here. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, 
and to prayer. These are the ordinary means of grace. This is the answer to the question, how? How? When all seems lost, how do I find strength in a personal relationship with Jesus? It is utilizing the ordinary, also extraordinary, but in this sermon, the ordinary means of grace. Some things have not changed. And what God calls us to as his followers, as followers of Jesus in the new covenant, hasn't changed. This is it. It's on the screen. So this is a good time for you to be thinking about to what degree am I continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the New Testament? Is it in my heart? Is it on my refrigerator? Is it on my mirror in the bathroom? Is it alive inside of me? Am I committed not only what we're doing this morning is very good, but I want to almost say this isn't really fellowship what we're doing this morning. Because I want to emphasize the kind of fellowship that doesn't happen when there's a hundred people or a thousand people or even 50 people gathered together. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread into prayer. Am I continually devoted to these things? If we are going to find the strength that David found, if we are going to find the strength that my long-dead Christian friend Frederick Douglass found, we're going to need to be devoted to these things. He was devoted to these things. Frederick Douglass was, and David was. David was devoted to them in the context of the Old Covenant. Frederick Douglass was devoted to them in the context of the new covenant. We're talking about when all seems lost, how we move forward. That's the situation of our passage today. This is the mutual human condition that you and I, as a follower of Jesus, as we read for Samuel, should identify with this, this mutual human condition of David who's wept and, and he found his strength. He calls the priest. You might remember he's the only one who made it. Saul killed all of the priests. Terrible event a few weeks ago that we studied in 1 Samuel. The only priest that made it out is Abiathar, and he made it out with this ephod. And, and, and so the Lord says, yes, go and overtake them. You're not, you are going to overtake them. So God gives guidance to David. This really happened. This is history. I'm not going to make it through the whole chapter today, but let's come back and let's look at verses 9 through 12. And we'll try to summarize the whole chapter after I go through 9 through 12. Let's come back to our text. I have a third point. So God says go through the priest, the prescribed means of grace in the Old Testament, if we want to call it that. So verse 9, David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Ravine where some stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. So they're pursuing the ones who have kidnapped their, their families. And 200 men can't make it. They've, they've stayed back. They're exhausted. They've just done this three-day journey, which would have been by foot and would have been many, many miles. To... So verse 11. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. 
he ate and was revived, meaning he wasn't really conscious. He, he, was, he was near dead. He was half dead. So he ate and he was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. Let me just read a couple more verses and then we'll summarize. So David asked him, to whom do you belong and, and where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. So we have an Egyptian who are, don't have, do the Egyptians have a, a great relationship with the Hebrew people? No, you, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar or Bible scholar. They, they, they don't. He's an Egyptian slave of an Amalekite. The Amalekites were supposed to have been wiped out by Saul. God pronounced judgment on them and sent Saul to judge them out, which Saul didn't follow what God said. So continuing on, my master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. So we have an Egyptian slave who was left in the desert to die. Verse 14, we raided the Negev of the Kerithites and the territory belonged to, territory belonged to Judah and to the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag. So here's one of the guys who burned David's town. So what does this have to do with your life and my life and how we respond when everything seems lost? There's something extraordinary going on here. So if we try to use our imaginations, go back and put yourself in David's shoes. If I'm in David's shoes, I want to find out if my wife and, and children and families are alive. I'm in a hurry. God has said, I'm going to overtake the bad guys. Whether they're alive or not, I, I want to execute justice on what they did, and I'm ready to go. What, what we have here, uh, you know, we're very familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is like the original, this is the original story of the Good Samaritan. We have a guy who is desperate to see if his family has made it. Now, the, the writer of 1 Samuel is, a, is what we call an omniscient narrator, so we all know what's going on, but if you, if you read this carefully, I don't think David knows whether his family's alive or not. He wants to learn that. He wants to bring justice. And what happens, there's a dude who is left for dead who's an Egyptian in the middle of nowhere, and he feeds him. He feeds him. Might this have something to do with your life and my life? When all seems lost, the way that I think is I need to tune out everything else and just focus on myself. That's the way I think. But if I'm reading 1 Samuel 30, and I'm asking the question, when all seems lost, and I've got a mission to go on, and here's an Egyptian slave, should I take the time to feed and care for the Egyptian slave? The Bible's answer is yes. This is what followers of Jesus do. We love the desperate that are nearby us. We love our neighbors. It is foundational. It is foundational to being a Christian. We become a Christian by believing the gospel. But we recognize that we're an authentic Christian, that we're a real Christian, that we're not a fake Christian by actually loving our neighbors, especially 
someone that you wouldn't think I should love, an Egyptian slave as an Israelite. The Samaritan in the New Testament shows us he's loving this Jew who's left for dead on the ground. He's modeling what would normally be an acceptable racism to just go by, go by the Jew, go by the Egyptian. No, we love him, we feed him, we care for him. This is very counterintuitive. When all seems lost, that may be the time that you need to care for a desperate neighbor. This is what David does. Now, if I go through this whole chapter, we're going to be here for another hour. So let me summarize what happens here the rest of this chapter. David learns from the Egyptian where the bad guys are. They go there. They take the bad guys out. They find Every family member is alive. I mean, gosh, the rejoicing of that. They're all alive. There is this great reunion. They capture all the stuff that was stolen from Ziklag before they burned it, and they get all their stuff after David's army defeats them. So they got a ton of booty. They got a ton of prizes. And then there's a fight, an internal fight among the army, David's army. The guys who went on the fight said, you know, this really should be distributed among those of us who fought, not the 200 that were too exhausted that stayed back behind. Could you imagine that happening? Any parents in here? (laughs) Um, So his army has a fight about how to distribute the plunder. And David distributes the plunder equally among everybody. The 200 that stayed back and the 400 that fought. Not only does he distribute to them, but then he sends it to all the towns. And that's how the chapter ends, naming all these towns. Hebron and Ramoth. He sends the, the plunder everywhere. We see a gracious king who's about to be on the throne of ancient Israel. David is about to take up the throne. And we see him delivering graciously what he has among all. You know, loving our neighbors is not something new. It was part of the law, Old Covenant and New Covenant. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We learn from the New Testament that our neighbors are not just those who look like us or are of the same race or of the same church, but our neighbors are anyone who is desperate and nearby us. Some call it the principle of moral proximity. I can't care for the person who's suffering in Syria today, but I can care for the person who lives on Chinquapin Way, my street, today. And it is fundamental to our faith that we do that. And this is part of the answer, as well as utilizing the means of grace, of what we are called to do when all seems lost. We find our strength in a personal relationship with Jesus. We utilize the means of grace, which actually is what we're supposed to do even when all doesn't seem lost. This is how we are to live as followers of Jesus. And we don't go by the desperate even when we ourselves are desperate. We love our neighbors. Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us to do this. Lord, you have given us a means to find grace, to find power by your Spirit,
to find help. Just as you gave it in the Old Covenant, you give it in different ways in the New Covenant. And some of us have neglected intimate Christian fellowship, koinonia. Some of us have neglected internalizing the truths of the New Testament and the gospel. We internalize lots of TV shows or books or other things, but we haven't internalized the apostles' teaching. Help us to internalize it, God. Lord, some of us, we maybe have viewed the sacraments or the ordinances, the Lord's Supper in particular, communion, as something that's really not that big of a deal. It's a big deal. Just as the ephod or the urim was in the Old Covenant, And we need to be strengthened on those first and third Sundays whenever we drink the cup or eat the bread. And finally, Lord, we need to cry out to you like David did constantly. In fact, he's taught us how to do it in the Psalms. And so help us to use those Psalms to learn how to pray and to cry out to you and to utilize the ordinary means of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.